0: When Jesus came to earth to live among us, he brought with him a new way of living. He had new information about how human life works, and it surpassed anything his hearers had ever heard. As people oriented their lives around his teaching, it transformed them and catalyzed a movement of love, joy, and meaning that permeated the Roman Empire, even as political power tried brutally to stamp it out. If we limit what Jesus taught to mere religion, we've missed him. His teaching was uniquely liberating for all of life, and it still is. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. At Quellen, we believe that in order to experience the life-transforming power of Jesus, We must first establish him as the master teacher for all of life. You're listening to The Writing Room, a podcast created by Quellen International to share the words and teachings of George Miley.
1: I've just come from teaching, teaching in Austin, Texas, to two retreats. And a highlight of that time for me was the wife of a retired professor at the University of Texas who actually said this. She said, I just want to be a competent human being. And I thought to myself, you know, what a wonderful thing to want, to be a competent human being. So we're using that word competent not in the sense of successful or wealthy or well-known or even influential, but competence in the sense that when whatever happens to me in life, I am able to negotiate it successfully. That's competence as a human being. And so we have suggested here that our first session, this is our first session in this series Our subtitle is Jesus as Master Teacher. One of the great tragedies for me in our day is that we're missing Jesus. We're missing him. He's standing there, the most competent human being that ever lived, the wisest human being that ever lived, the greatest teacher that ever lived, who came to impart a wisdom that Plato is not even in his same category, or Aristotle, or Gandhi, or anyone else that we can mention, He stands above it all, and he spoke with a wisdom. He's the master teacher. You call me master or teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. And then he went on to say, if I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, then you must wash one another's feet. There you see the teacher and the wisdom all brought together. And I felt like this week in my own reading, the Lord gave us a theme verse for this series from Luke 6, 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why did Christ come? There are a number of words we could use. One way we can express it is he came to impart Christ-likeness. What is a Christian? One way to describe a Christian is someone who's growing in Christ-likeness. A disciple of Jesus becomes increasingly like Jesus. And now here is one of the foundational understandings that is so important for us to go away with. Maturity in the inner life, or wholeness in the inner life, Is the same thing as Christ-likeness in the inner life. It's the same thing. One of the ways we miss Jesus is we relegate him to the realm of the religious. Jesus did not come only to teach about religious subjects. He came to teach about life. So, what is our situation? Our situation is, and I I, I love when I think about our situation, to think about the parable of the prodigal son. We have been created by an absolutely magnificent God. And he created us like him. We bear his image. We're created to live in his presence. We're created to be like him. We're created for a life that is filled with meaning and purpose, and joy, and wholeness. But having been created by that magnificent God in his likeness, we went away from him. Why did we do that? I can still remember when that process began with me. I had a life-changing experience with God in St. Thomas Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia. I don't want to start telling you about that because we get off the track. But it's been the most beautiful, powerful, life-giving, desirable experience of my whole life. Sometime around the age of 10 or 12. And when I was 14, I still remember this scene in my bedroom. I had lost my keys. And I prayed, Father, show me where my keys are. And within a minute, I found my keys. And then the thought came to me, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live so that every minute and every decision, I have to ask God. I remember thinking. that. So I'm just going to say it was luck. And I began to move away from God. I made the decision to go away from God. Now, when I did that, many, many, many decisions, you know, endless decisions, to go away from God. When I made those decisions, that had consequences. And the consequences were pervasive damage in me. Because sin damages. Sin brings death. Sin brings damage to the thought life. To the emotions. To the will. To the body. To the soul. To the social relationships. Sin brings damage into each of those arenas of our lives and so here we are we are glorious beings but we're also fallen beings and we've lost our way we've lost our way we've come separated from the God who created us and the God for whom we were created to be in fellowship and so in that context God in his love said to himself, I am going to provide a way for them to come back. I'm going to provide a way. Because if I leave them on their own, they'll never find their way back. So God provided a way. And that way is Jesus. There is no other way. Jesus is the way." And Jesus is the way through whom we can come back to God. Now, often when we think of that, we immediately begin to think about guilt. And of course, it's right that we think about guilt. Because one of the damages, one of the awesome consequences of our going away from God is we trigger guilt. We are guilty before a righteous God. That's true. But the issue with coming back to God is not just guilt, it's not just guilt. I heard a wise woman one time say, so-and-so says he's saved. But my observation is, there's a lot more saving that needs to be done. (laughs) Now, what did that person mean when that person said, I'm saved, that person meant I bring him, brought my sin to the cross of Christ, and I believe he has forgiven me. Hallelujah. We're not minimizing that one iota. But it doesn't end there. God didn't send Jesus to deal with that guilt, but leave us with our dysfunctions. He didn't come to take away our guilt and leave us with the destructive behavior that's a part of our inner lives that we cannot come free from. He came to free us from that. He came to make us whole people. He came to restore us to the condition he had in mind for us when he created us. We're talking restoration. Jesus said, Behold, I make everything new. Paul wrote, If any man be in Christ, He is a new creature. The old has passed. The new has come. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Some of us stop there. I mean, I don't want this, you know. Church on Sunday is okay, but don't talk to me about this cross thing. But you know, it doesn't stop there. Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. Wholeness in the inner life. Okay, Americans, don't miss it. Self-reliance traps us in immaturity.
0: Attitude
1: of self-reliance, I'm not saying irresponsibility, but an attitude of self-reliance traps us in immaturity because it's not in keeping with truth. We are not self-reliant. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He that loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus came to restore to us the life for which we were created. And that takes place, other things we can say about that, but that takes place in reliance upon him. Moment by moment, moment by moment, relying upon him. There is a widespread sense today that this life about which we're speaking, about which Jesus spoke, about which the apostles spoke, about which the early church fathers spoke, is unattainable. There seems to be pervasive defeat among Christians, even Christian leaders. Why? Why is that? Why is it that there could be a pervasive sense among those who self-identify as Christians? That what Jesus talked about was nice, sweet, religious talk. But has nothing to do with reality. We've simply missed him. We've simply missed him. He stands in our midst, the resurrected Christ, and we have missed him. How can this be? Our inner lives have been formed in a world of wrongness. Having been created by God to be like him, and to live continually in his presence, each of us made the disastrous decision to go away from him, to seek a life of our own making that was better than life from him. That was a disastrous decision. This disastrous decision resulted in extensive damage and distortion within us, in our thoughts, emotions, wills, bodies, social relationships, and souls. Having been formed in and by our lostness, and the lostness of those all around us, we now must be reformed, transformed. So sin has not only twisted and distorted the inner life, by the way, we're actually talking about the whole person because the outer life, the body, and the social relationships are profoundly influenced by the condition of the inner life. The inner life has not only been distorted, but through that distortion we have learned destructive behaviors. So let's talk about that for a minute the human being has this incredible capacity to learn and store knowledge one example language i'm speaking to you in the english language i'm not thinking subject verb prepositional phrase i'm just speaking i'm not even aware that i'm speaking in english i'm not even aware of what I'm, i i know the concepts i want to communicate that's all i need to know the language is below my awareness. Not only the language, but the pronunciation. Hannah and I go to Santa Rita Abbey. You know, when you come back from Santa Rita Abbey, near Senoita, there's a border patrol. And they make you stop, and they engage you in conversation. How are you today? They want to hear the accent. So I make sure I answer, not Hannah. That can throw them (laughs) off. But the minute I say, "I'm fine, how are you? They know I'm an American. When I speak in German, if I were to start speaking to you in German right now, you'd be impressed. <laughs> when Germans hear me speak German, if they know English, they answer in English. <laughs> they think, "Poor soul, he's trying to speak
0: out English." <laughs>
1: Let's give him credit. But let's help him out a little bit. You can tell by the accent. So all that knowledge is stored within us. Or how to get dressed. Or how to drive a car. On and on and on. We learn and we store. Same thing happens with sinful patterns. We have learned sinful patterns. Not just from ourselves. We learn it in our family. I can't prove this, but I think it begins in the womb. Certainly begins in the family of origin, goes from there into the school, goes from there into the society, goes from there into the general population. Sinful patterns, things that are viewed as normal but are destructive. The whole area of sexuality and all of its different components that now is being considered more and more normal in our culture is doing untold damage to people, but they have no understanding that it's doing untold damage, because what I do with my body affects my soul. What I do with my body sexually affects my soul. That's why sexual abuse is so damaging, because sexual abuse is not a physical activity only. It is something that affects the soul. You say, George, how did you learn that from Jesus? Jesus came to teach about life in all of its fullness. So, we have all this sinful behavior stored within us. Therefore, we must be reformed. We have already been formed. When we come to understand this, we have been formed in a world of wrongness. We now must be reformed. The formation must now be undone and redone. How do we do that? In apprenticeship to Jesus. That's how it happens. Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this reformation takes place with Jesus. As disciples of him. As apprentices of him. And the description of apprenticeship to Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. That I just love so much. In apprenticeship to Jesus. We are with him. To learn from him. How to be like him. We are with him. He's risen. To learn from him. How to be like him. And as we grow to be like him on the inside, what happens? We become increasingly whole people. We become increasingly competent human beings. Whatever comes to us in life, we're able to negotiate because we have been formed in his likeness. This is a process. This is a really key point. We're talking here about being reformed and we're We're talking about a process. Now, when we say it's a process, we're not suggesting that they're not high points. Often there are high points. What do we mean by high point? We mean experience with God. You know, I've already alluded to, (laughs) I don't like to talk about this, but here I am in my Anglican original context. Well, maybe I should. I hesitate to talk about this because when I share with you my experience, please do not think, oh gee, I haven't had that kind of experience, therefore this doesn't apply to me. God works in each of us in unique ways. None of our experience is all the same. The experience that I had as a young child approaching the teenage years was an act of pure grace. I didn't seek it, I didn't ask for it, I didn't even know to ask for it. But God met me. I don't know if it was in the liturgy, I guess it was. I don't know if it was when I was confirmed. I think it was before I was confirmed. I don't remember. I just know that I knew God. I came to know God. I was carrying morning papers. The Richmond Times Dispatch. And it took me an hour to carry my route. And the whole time I was carrying my route, I would pray. Not because anybody told me to pray, but because it was just, why wouldn't you pray? I heard about the, the, the fear of God. I couldn't imagine anybody being afraid of God. I wasn't afraid of God. I loved God. I loved to be with God. And that experience, I don't know how long that lasted. I don't, I don't know. Weeks, months, maybe, I don't. Maybe a couple of years, I don't remember. I do remember, as I've already told you, I went away from God. Why did I do that? That experience has kept me. That experience kept me out of liberal theology. Because when I first studied theology, it was un- as an undergraduate student, and we got all the liberal theology, you know, all of it. And I thought to myself, you know. If what I'm hearing in these courses is true, then I'd rather have what I had in St. Thomas Episcopal Church because it was more vital than all this. What's the point? The point is that was a experience with God. But that experience with God did not keep me out of anger. It didn't keep me out of selfish ambition. It didn't keep me out of All the sins of not being fulfilled. That experience, as beautiful as it was, didn't do the trick. And so here's the thing. This is a process. Any crisis that is not followed by a process is in danger of producing an access. We're talking process. And it's a process we must choose. It's a process we must choose. Now, we're going to talk more about the will, but let me just say this about the will. We must be able to distinguish between will and will power. Will power is hugely over- overrated. But will is absolutely crucial to who God made us to be. So when God created you and me, he gave us a will. The will is the seat of our creativity. The will is the seat of our uniqueness before God. And God gave us the power to choose. Without the power to choose, we cannot worship. Without the power to choose, we cannot love. So the power to choose is crucial. And this process that we're talking about, that will mature us to wholeness in the inner life, must be chosen. It must be chosen day after day, day after day, day after day. And we will blow it, probably on a daily basis. When we blow it, we use our will to come back to the cross. So the whole process with Jesus of guilt, guilt is the easiest thing to deal with. There's some people that spend their whole lives under the burden of guilt. Guilt is the easiest thing to deal with. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Look, I'm dying for you because I love you. Bring your sin to me and I will carry it. No, Jesus, we don't want to bring it to you. We want to, we can deal with it ourselves. Well, okay, that's your choice. But here I am. I'm dying for you because I love you. Bring your sin to me and I will carry it. So guilt, why would we carry guilt? Guilt is the easiest thing to deal with. It's the formation of wrongness within us. It's the anger. It's the lust. It's the greed. It's the selfish ambition that creates the chaos, and that is part of this reforming that we're talking about that takes place and must take place over a lifetime of walking with Jesus. So we must be reformed, reshaped. It's a process that we must choose. Now, willpower. There is this wrong understanding out there. Tell people what they should do. And once they know what they should do, Then the problem is all solved because they know what they should do. They just have the willpower to do it. But the problem is they don't have the willpower to do it. So, don't miss this. Obedience is a function of the soul. Obedience is a function of the soul. Obedience is not a function of the willpower. The willpower can be overridden by all kinds of things. Will can be overridden by, by emotion. The emotion comes in and what we really want to do, Paul said in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do do. What is that? The weakness of willpower. Jesus obeyed. How did he obey? Was it his willpower? No. It was the condition of his soul. Why did Jesus, when he hung on the cross, not just spew out venom toward those who had crucified him, toward Pilate and toward Herod and toward the Roman soldiers and toward the Pharisees and the high... Why didn't he just, just spew out venom? May all of you burn in hell. You're crucifying the Messiah. I came for you and look what you're doing to me. Why didn't he do that? It wasn't the kind of person he was. He wasn't the kind of person that did that. He was the kind of person who forgives. He had a beautiful soul. Jesus, when they crucified him, at one point, the Roman soldiers took him in the barracks and they stripped him. Why did they strip him? To intimidate they stripped him naked what would it be like to be standing in a group of a hundred soldiers stripped and mocked and they took him to Pilate Pilate says to the crowd I don't find anything wrong with this man the crowd yells crucify him Pilate says you know, what evil has he done I'll give you a they said Crucify him and give us Barabbas. You know, if I ever have to go through that, I'm sure I will lose it. I will lose it. Jesus never lost it. Why? The condition of his soul. So Jesus is inviting us, look, come to me and learn about the reformation of the soul in the light and and experience the life that comes from that. Now, for this to happen, there are three things that have to happen to us, Of three processes that have to take place within us. First of all, our guilt has to be removed. That's important. Secondly, our inner wounds must be healed. I was talking to one of my colleagues a couple of weeks ago who knows that I'm teaching more and more on inner healing. And he said, you know, George, I went through a season where I wondered, what does inner healing have to do with preaching the gospel to the nations or preparing the church for the second coming? What, what does inner healing have to do with? And he says, now I understand. Inner healing has everything to do with it. Because a key to preaching the gospel among the nations is Christ-like people. If we don't have Christ-like people preaching the gospel to the nations, the people that we send are going to malfunction. They're going to malfunction. And whatever fruit they have, they're going to pass onto that fruit their own dysfunction." So inner healing. Now we're going to do a whole session. If we do have time on inner healing, but this is important right now for us to know about inner healing. Areas in us that are unhealed block the process. So there can be this area where I I have continued to mature. This area I've continued to mature, but this area I'm I'm wounded. There's wounding that has not been dealt with. I'm blocked. And when I'm blocked, it doesn't matter what physical age I am. We can be 20 years old and still blocked. 30 years old and still blocked. 50 years old and still blocked. 70 years old and still blocked. You ever know old people that act in some ways like children? This is one of my prayers. Oh, Jesus, keep me from being an ugly old man. (laughs) Do something beautiful in me. Please, by your grace. So, areas that aren't healed block the process. Jesus wants to heal those areas. He wants to heal those areas. How does that healing take place? We can't get on that track, but we can say this. Healing takes place in the presence of God. So, a key component, this process about which we're speaking right now, Where does that process take place? In the presence of God. What is the most important thing we learn from Jesus? How to be in the presence of God. Why is being in the presence of God so important? It's what we were created for. We were created to be there. Some people think, oh, talk about God all the time. It must be boring. Do you think a fish is bored by being in the water? A fish is created to be in the water. We're created to be with God. Our delight is in God. Our healing is in God. Our wholeness is in God. Our whole being is created to be in God. Do you believe we can get to the point where being with God is not born? We want more of it. That's the process about which we're speaking. So a guilt must be dealt with. Inner, wound, inner wounds must be healed. And each part of our person must be reformed or redeemed or saved. We must receive a new life. A new life. It's available in Jesus. A new life. A new life. This is good news. This is the gospel. Jesus didn't come preaching a gospel. Well, I can take care of your sin, but I I can't do anything for all your dysfunction, and and everything that's crippling you and wounding you. I You're in bondage to your dysfunction, but I can't help you. I can just deal with your guilt. Huh? Jesus said, look, I've come to free you from that sin. I've come to free you from that bondage. I've come to free you from that dysfunction. I've come to free you from that. Okay, Jesus, do it now. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. This process advances as we learn from Jesus how to return to the Father and live moment by moment in his presence. We were created for this Our damage and lostness were caused by our own decision to go away from him. We are healed and restored as we return to him. We learn to rely on Jesus alone. His cross has the power to remove our guilt. His teachings show us how to live in the kingdom of God. His spirit reforms us and gives us the power to obey. Now, just a word about the kingdom of God. We could rewrite this a lot, we won't. In the terminology of the kingdom of God, The kingdom of God is the major theme that Jesus, in Jesus' teaching, if you go through Jesus' teaching, you'll see, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the sphere in which God rules. It's the place or the location or the area or the context in which God rules. Why is it so healthy and wholesome to be in nature? Because because nature does not rebel against its creator. Why is it often so chaotic to be among people? Because we are in rebellion against that creator. We have made the decision not to live in the kingdom of God. Just like I made that decision. I don't want God to, you know, this gets, I I want more space. Make my own decisions. So, in all that we're saying, we are being called back to the kingdom of God. The rule of God, to live within the rule of God. The. Let's just say something about the Holy Spirit. This is really important. We're talking about being reformed or transformed. Who does that? The Holy Spirit does it. We don't do it. I can't reform myself by my own willpower. See, that leads to defeat. That leads to a life of quiet desperation. I try and I try and I try. And after at least, you know, say five or ten years, we just go into defeat. Well, defeat must be, you know... It must be, you know, a normal Christian life must be defeat. It seems that everybody else is living in defeat, so it must be normal. And all these things I read about in the New Testament, well, you know, I don't know. It's not working for me. It's not working for anybody else I know. The Holy Spirit transforms. But here's where our will comes. Not will power, Holy Spirit power, but our will chooses. Our will chooses to open our inner life To the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have to make that choice. And if we choose that, the Holy Spirit comes. Now, one thing about the Holy Spirit's presence. One thing about God's presence. God can make himself known to the human senses anytime he wants to. Sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. God can make himself known to those senses anytime he wants to. But God is spirit. What does it mean? It means he doesn't have a body. God doesn't have a body. God is not material. That's the awesome thing about the incarnation. God took on a body. Took on a human body. Why on earth would the invisible God take on a human body? Because he loved us and wanted to bear our sins. That's why. So God is invisible. So God is here. You say, well, I don't feel it. You got your eyes on the wrong... We have our eyes on the wrong thing when we say we don't feel it. Just know God is here. He always will be. He always has been. He hears our prayers. He knows the desires of our heart. He sees the decision that we make, and he responds to it. We have to learn to trust him. We pray, Lord, come and change this, that, and the other thing. We finish the prayer, nothing seems different. He oh, must not have heard. Why would we think that? He's invisible. He's here. He's heard. He knows. Trust him. Walk with him. Trust him. And as we learn to simply trust the invisible God more and more, he makes himself known to us. So we talked for a moment, a moment ago about healing. The most healing thing that will ever happen to you is for you to hear, for you and me to hear our Heavenly Father say, I love you. And know that it's our Heavenly Father who said it. What do you think about yourself? Do you think you're unworthy? You've really blown it? If only everybody knew how awful you really are? What if you could hear your Heavenly Father who created you say to you, I love you. But Father, how could you love me? I've done all these bad things. I know you've done all those bad things. You're not informing me of anything. I know that. (laughs) But I love you because I created you. I love you because I'm God. I love you because that's who I am. I am a person who loves you and created you. I love you. I want you to know that I love you. And we start hearing that day after day. I love you. We will begin be changed. And in my case, I'm not going to tell the story now, in my case, one huge thing that was true of me is anger. I've already talked a little bit about that. There's anger that at one point I was in bondage to, even after that experience in St. Thomas Episcopal Church, even after being a missionary, even after being seen as a Christian leader, even after all that anger, not there anymore. It's not there. It's gone. Now that's not a boast because at any moment I've got to be careful. i got to be careful. So we're not talking here about perfection. We're not talking about perfection. But we are talking about victory. I have been delivered from that anger. Although at any moment I could be angry. i got to be careful. Apprenticeship to Jesus results in one the ability to do the things Jesus said were best. I love that definition of obedience. Obedience. You know, sometimes obedience sounds obedience. gotta do this. God's telling me. God doesn't have an ego problem. God isn't trying to uh get his ego satisfied by telling us what to do and getting us to do it. That doesn't give God some great pleasure. The commands of Jesus are simply the same kind of thing as when you, say, buy a new car, and you get the owner's manual. Now, if the owner's manual says, change the oil after so many, and use a certain kind of oil, it would be a good thing to do that. It's not the owner telling you what to do. It's the owner informing you how the car was manufactured and what you can do to help it out. That's what the commands of Jesus are. They're simply the owner's instruction. He's the one that created us. He knows how life is to be lived. We simply do what he told told us to do, and we experience life. The ability to do the things Jesus said were best, to get that ability is a function of the soul, the transformation of the soul. Secondly, apprenticeship to Jesus results in the healing of the person. The healing of the person is a function of walking in apprenticeship to Jesus. Three, life lives predominantly in God's kingdom. Four, a life of victory, not of perfection.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Quellen International. At Quellen, we tell the story of Jesus through our growing collection of resources created by our team in Germany and the US, from podcasts like this to lesson plans, books, and videos. Today, I want to highlight our latest video resource entitled Forged Identity. In this 26-minute interview, Amanda Actman speaks to Hannah Miley about her journey of forging a new identity after escaping Nazi Germany on the Kindertransport at just seven years old and being forced to start a new life in England. Watch this video and more by searching Quellen International on YouTube or by visiting Quellen.org. And if you find any of our resources beneficial, consider helping us create more by going to Quellen.org give and making a donation to the ministry. That's dot org forward slash give. George, in today's teaching, you talk about establishing Jesus as master teacher for all of life. And I noticed in this teaching that you're discussing a lot of the same topics uh, that are in your book, uh, maturing toward wholeness in the inner life, um, but this is recorded long before that book even came out. So, can you touch on or can you talk to us about uh, this this season and when you did this teaching and how this eventually kind of formed uh, your book?
1: Well, there were people in our church fellowship who had heard me teach and who were grappling in their own lives with um, how do I take my faith in Christ and um, take it deeper into my experience in, in such a way that I am transformed increasingly into his image. And so I was asked to do a series of teachings in our adult education hour. And this actually was the first teaching that I did in that series. And of course the subject is so foundational to everything else that is built upon it, namely Jesus.
0: Mm.
1: And so um, once I got through all the series, uh, I realized I had a series here and it was really deeply within me and there were things that were growing out of it. And so over time that became the foundation of the book as you mentioned, Mike, uh, maturing toward wholeness in the inner life.
0: So, could you talk about kind of what the results were from this series, and and why it was so uh, meaningful to you enough to to put it into a book? Well, um,
1: the, the great sadness that. Um, many of us carry in addition to the utter joy of knowing Christ and speaking of him. The real sadness is that there's so many people who have heard of him, they go to church, um, but they're not experiencing the fullness of life that he promised. Hmm. And so how sad is that? That people could be month after month, year after year identifying to the best of their knowledge as being Christians, but still when they're really honest, they would describe their experience as a Christian as an experience of being defeated. Mm. And so the real passion was to open the door for people to enter into the profound Mm. victory healing that Jesus brings. So that was the, the foundation of all that we were working with
0: here. Yeah. Um, and, and like we always do at the, in these conversations at the end of the podcast, um, without, without making you re-preach the sermon all over again, uh, what, what are your thoughts on how we can practically engage in this conversation of establishing Jesus as our master teacher? Um, what what is what is that what does that look like in in the in the life of you know a regular person like you and me
1: well it, it the short way to say it is that we become a disciple yeah uh, establishing Jesus as the master teacher is another way of saying disciple and the reason we use that wording is that the word disciple already has baggage to it some of which is negative yeah but um, and um, that's what Jesus called the first disciples to. He called them to discipleship. And what is discipleship? Well, it's, it's joining with a teacher and allowing that teacher to teach you. So you become the disciple, or another word we could use as the apprentice mm. to the teacher or the tra- trainee under the teaching of that teacher. And so Jesus, if we just see Jesus' teachings like love your enemies, Go do it. Well, ultimately, that's not something we can just do on our own strength. So how do we love our enemies? Well, actually, it's about an inner transformation where we become the kind of person increasingly for whom hating our enemies is just no longer appealing.
0: Mm.
1: Why would I want to hate anybody? What I really want to do is love someone. And when I really want to do that, I am becoming like Jesus. Well, how do I get there? well, I join with him and become his disciple and allow him to teach me the process of bringing me to that point.
0: Thank you for listening to The Writing Room by Quellen International. This episode was scripted by George Miley and me, Micah Daly. Production, editing, and original music by Micah Daly. The teaching excerpt used in this episode was recorded in 2011 at Christ Church Anglican in Phoenix, Arizona.